When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Trust here, Billboard's co-director of charts, and with us this week on the podcast, one of our own. Really excited to have Billboard's news director and also Hollywood reporter, our sister publication and website, music editor, Shirley Halpern. Welcome, Shirley. You, you. I will say you looked very busy when I came to get you for the podcast, so I think you were working today as we're yes. taping this. Yes. Uh, Wednesday is like our drop dead, we got to get the pages out the door day. So um, I was putting together the finishing touches on a story about the Bataclan six months after the terrorist attacks. Right. And uh, how they're rebuilding and who they may potentially get to open the club to headline, you know, to be the first headliner when they come back in the fall. That's probably one of the most serious stories you worked on, I would think, in a while, right? Yeah, it was it was a downer, um, but a very important story, and I'm glad we were able to tell it. We found a really great French journalist who had a lot of insight and connections, and you know, I think it turned out really great. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that also, uh, specifically uh, as we uh, talk more of the David Bowie coverage we did earlier in the year, because those were a couple instances of uh, new stories that happened, completely unexpected, both really sad. And that's that's where Billboard uh, can, can really dig in to stories, uh, I would think, like no one else can, and pretty much uh, without any warning sometimes. True. The David Bowie uh, illness we had actually heard about, and it was one of those situations where I remember in 2000, I actually went and looked this up. It was in December of 2011 when I asked at THR that we get an obit ready for David Bowie. So, you know, in a way, we kind of had a little bit of a, of a leg up on people because right. we had already written it and we had some inkling that he was very sick. But when it happened, you know, I mean, I don't think I slept or stopped reporting David Bowie for at least two days. And actually, Charts comes in very handy when, um, when there's a, a death of a musician, because the first thing we do is gather the chart data so that everyone else who is reporting on the musician dying can cite their, how successful they were with solid numbers and metrics and chart positions. So, so thank you, Gary. So you like the charts department? We love the charts. All right. Good answer as we get started. <laughs> we'll keep you here for, for the rest of the podcast. Woohoo! 
We're, we're just getting started. And this is, uh, you know, sort of the first edition, surely, of the podcast where we're having uh, a Billboard staffer here talking about what we do at Billboard. I think it's uh, going to be a, a theme I want to do here on on the podcast, sort of uh, just getting into how we do what we do, uh, kind of shining a light on how the industry covers the industry, because I think it's kind of interesting to just talk about that. Uh, you don't get that perspective just by reading the magazine or by looking at the website. I, I think it's kind of fun. If, if I didn't work here, I would be interested in that. Absolutely. Well, one thing I've learned since I've started working at Billboard is that the people who make the best billboard employees are the ones who were obsessed, interested, infatuated with the charts as kids. Um, curious, you know. I mean, I grew up in Israel, so I got a lot of my pop music from Europe, and I would just pour through the hits of the world chart. You know, I wanted to know what was coming up, what was going to be popular, and it was always six months ahead of the U.S. And uh, I've since met a lot of people who work here at Billboard who had similar experiences, right. you know, where they really just studied the charts. Yeah, they're uh, they're everybody's charts. I didn't know actually until we, we were just talking before the podcast. I, I I thought you were from uh, the New York, New Jersey area. I didn't know you were actually born in Israel. Yeah, born in Israel. I uh, lived there, you know, throughout my youth, and then came back every summer. Uh, my mom was a Hebrew teacher, so she was always going back and forth. And um, yeah, and I I really got into music. You know, as a like 10, 11, 12 year old in, in Israel, I was obsessed with Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, every sort of new wave band that came out of the UK. And that was in, what was incredibly popular in Israel, you know, again, before it hit in the States. Was that on Israeli radio? How did you find music back then? There was, yeah, I mean, it was mostly through MTV here in New Jersey, oh, where okay. I spent also most of my youth. Right. Um but, uh, yeah, the radio, too, and clubs. Um, I, I would go to nightclubs when I was 12 years old, you know, and that's where I heard, like, you know, Depeche Mode just can't get enough for the first time. Um, and, you know, I was hanging with, like, an older crowd and a musician-y crowd. And, you know, some people that, that I knew as a kid have since gone on to have, like, real careers in music, you know, as DJs um, or as, as songwriters or as, as band people. So... You know, it's sort of always been a part of my life, even before it was a career. You were getting into clubs, you said, at 12, 12 years, years old. old. Any, any elaboration you want to do on how that happened? My mom was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would take a cab uh, to, well, actually, to get there, we would normally take a bus, but then the buses stopped at midnight, and we would be out until like 5 or 6 in the morning. So we'd take a cab back to my grandmother's house, yeah. which was only like 25 minutes away, but it felt like it was two hours away. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, I was, you know, I was all about that, that new wave scene. I, I remember hearing about uh, pogoing and, you know, learning about that through like my peers and right. learning about synthesizers and sort of like, you know, early uh, digital instruments. Um, it was a real uh, sort of crash course and, and early exposure to, you know, what became really pop, pop music of the time. Billboard's news coverage, where does it even begin? How do you begin to take 
everything that's going on in the industry, not even just in a, in a weekly uh, frame, but 24-7 at this point, like we were saying about David Bowie, where do you begin to cover the music industry these days? Well, you start out by having a news team because it is impossible for one person to cover it all. The global music industry is giant. There's a lot going on, like you said, at all hours. So, you know, I've kind of made sure since I've gotten here that we have people positioned that are either experts in certain genres or just have a territory. So we have a guy in London. We have a guy in Australia. We have someone in Israel. We have someone in India. You know, I make sure that that in Germany and, you know, uh, countries throughout Europe, I just make sure that we have things covered so that when something pops up, it can go to the right person. Um, as far as the magazine, I mean, I oversee the, the news coverage, which is part of Top Line, which is front of the book, to use okay. journalistic terms. Um, it's the first section that you read, and I have a great very small team, um, but we all know the industry, I think, really well. Um, our our specialty is understanding the business of music. You know, we're not doing profiles of artists, and we rarely um, get to just, like, sit down and shoot the shit with an artist. It's always about what's happening in the economics of music. So it's very specialized in a way. Um, and there aren't a ton of reporters that have gone into the field. So the ones that do pop up, we grab them. Um, so, yeah, uh, in terms of just like monitoring the news, we have sources everywhere. And I encourage our journalists and reporters to develop sources. I also make a point of meeting with people in the industry regularly just to talk about what's on their mind and what's on their plate. Um, and that's where I get a lot of ideas for oh, you guys should really cover this. You know, this is an important change or this is an important story. Um, and then I'll pursue it that way. But, um, you know, I, I do just sort of guide the coverage as much as I can. And um, I've learned a lot since I've been here. I would never have professed that I knew everything about the music industry, but I definitely can sense when a story needs to be done. And I think that's kind of like the crux of my job. It was so much online. Billboard, the magazine, comes out once a week. So by the time you're reading a billboard, chances are if you're really in the know about the industry, you, you probably know about the topic you're reading about. So what does Billboard, the magazine, bring in terms of people might know that this news happened? Why are we reading the story a few days or a week later? Good question. Um, well, for one thing, analysis. I think that's something we do really well. Yes, you might know about the story, but the underlying, you know, uh, ins and outs of it and how it will impact the industry overall, I think it is something that we do very well. I also think we work really hard at advancing stories. So like with this uh, Bataclan story, they had already announced shows that are going to ha happen on Des November and December. But we got the details of what exactly the rebuilding of the venue looks like, which means gutting the floor, right. putting in a new stage, you know, things that you probably didn't read, you know, in articles that came out of a press release. So um, analysis, moving stories forward. Um, a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What else? I think there's a certain amount of... Um... I wouldn't say opinion, but sort of well-informed takes on things. Uh, we're starting a new section called The Record. It's yeah. coming coming out pretty soon, actually, in the next couple issues. And that's going to be like a deep dive into a topic that the industry really cares about. So a story we're working on right now is how the industry feels about YouTube. You know, it is a very hot topic. It has been for a while, but it's gotten to the point now where YouTube's, you know, almost 10 years old and people don't feel like it pays musicians or right. the rights holders enough. And that's something that we really, beyond the analysis, we have to explain it and offer some sort of guide as to where it might go. So that's something that we do a lot. Um, also, we do a, a section. It's sort of like a um, a regular feature called From the Desk Of, where we interview a, a senior person in the music business, and we ask, I think, very challenging questions. You know, these aren't puff pieces. Um, and that's something that I think I picked up from working for Janice Min, who is, of course, our fearless leader here um, and who I'd worked with before at Us Weekly. So in a way, like my job as a gossip reporter has helped me, you know, nail down these right. interviews and really get the most out of people. Um, we're in a unique position because we're a consumer trade hybrid and it's a pretty sort of uh, rare thing in magazines. And I do think that we go out of our way to make it so that someone who is an industry expert and who might be new to the industry can both read the same article and get something out of it. You know, I think when uh, The Hollywood Reporter was first relaunched, the idea of it was that it was aspirational. The person who read the magazine wanted to be an agent or the head of a company or an entrepreneur. So, you know, they were trying to learn as much as they were, you know, sort of um, immersing themselves in an industry. Um, I think Billboard is a little bit of that. It's I think Billboard's a more mature product just because it's been around for a hundred years. Right. So you get the uh, you get the audience of people who have been working in the music industry their entire lives. And yeah, it's it's a balance and it's sometimes a tricky one to do. Do you like writing? Do you like editing? Better? I hate writing. Yeah, that sounds about right. For... I'm so glad you asked me yeah. that. Hate writing. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> is, is, is it you like having written, but you hate writing? Or even sort anything of. about the process? It, it's actually the process that yeah. I don't like. It's very hard. Right. Um, I think for a long time I used my ex- – my excuse was that I w- English was my second language. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it was harder for me. Right. You know, I only, like didn't speak English until I was like eight, nine years old. So you grew up with Hebrew? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, and still speak Hebrew yeah. at home, like to my mom. Right. Um, so, you know, I think for a long time I sort of struggled with the language part of it. And then I kind of got good at the language and had to learn about structure and, you know, nut graphs and, you know, things that are like, you know, I also didn't graduate college, so that probably didn't help. But, you know, things that I just never learned in journalism classes. Um, and I just find it really difficult. It's Writing is not easy. Right. Um, it is somewhat satisfying, you know, to, to see your byline. But I think for doing it as long as I've been doing it, which is now 20 years, more than 20 years, it, you know, it really doesn't do all that much for me. But, yeah, people ask me if I like writing all the time, and I always say, no, I hate it. I think it's that artist mentality to, to, to sit down with a blank canvas sometimes. Yeah. So where do I even be? I sometimes think that when, when I do like the Ask Billboard Q&A, I, like I love posting that every week and the questions are great from readers, but I will procrastinate like on an entire Sunday writing that just because it's it, there's sort of that mental block sometimes just just to get started. Once you do, then you're fine. Yeah. Well, the hardest thing about writing is the lead. Right. You know, and I think it took me like a good 15 years to get that down. You know, and uh, and I also remember when I first started working at Us Weekly, um, you know, I started on a trial period where they were like, let's see if she fits in. Let's see what happens. And I was covering music. And I remember one of the editors there um, saying that they didn't think I had the right voice for the magazine, which I was like a little insulted by because it's not like. Look, it wasn't The New Yorker. It's Us Weekly. The longest story is like 150 words. So for me to sort of feel like I'm not good enough to write for this magazine was really like a difficult pill to swallow. But it was also sort of like a tough love way of getting me to really focus on the words. And by the way, much harder to write short than write long. So I think I learned all those skills you know, the hard way where, again, it took a couple of years before I felt comfortable. But, you know, by the end, it was it was kind of like second nature. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I found it very challenging over the years. I've learned and I've gotten better at it. But that doesn't mean that it's any easier to come up with a lead or, you know, to really, really like grasp the the crux of a story and bring somebody in. Do you read a lot of other things or a big reader um i only my husband makes fun of me because i only read books about the music industry ah. so you know it's what you know from f- first reading hitmen like way back when you know to the warner brothers book to the big payback i mean you know if it has to do with the music business i'm in um and i like to sometimes even read them again to refresh my memory about who the players were because some of these um record companies a lot of the players are still sort of descendant from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Right. So I like to sort of like refresh my memory about how this company got there and who the players were and what sort of mandates and business philosophy, you know, is ingrained in the company because it started 
way back in you know the Barry Manilow days or whatever. Um, so so I do read, but it's it's almost always uh, industry stuff. So you're a big fan of the thread of music history. I love the music history stuff. I mean, I think a lot of people got into music because there was a sort of glorified, um, you know, imagination of what the early years of the industry were. Um, And we certainly see that in shows like Vinyl and, you know, certain movies where, you know, even like the Ray Charles movie where, you know, you know that he was sort of like getting screwed out of early gigs, but it's still fascinating to watch or him going into the studio with Jerry Wexler, you know, these like names, these iconic figures, Amit Erdogan. Um, You know, I do sort of like, uh, I'm almost like wistful about, the old days, you know, but you have to recognize that it's a very, very different industry. On the other hand, knowing all of that, that backstory really helps you understand where they are today and why they're in the predicament that they're in today and why they can't, you know, make, make money off of streaming. It all comes back to like the old contracts, you know, um, it's why people, you know, make so much more money off of vinyl. The vinyl sales are like going back to their original right. contract where they're getting paid out nicely. Right. You know, streaming is like, oh, well, you know, well, this is the rate or maybe it's this rate, you know. Um, so having that sort of 360 degree view, I think, is very helpful. But I've never really worked in the music industry, which is, you know, a little tricky because there are times when you feel like an outsider looking in. Um, and I'm aware of that, you know, I don't pretend that I worked in radio promotion. I don't, but I have a good idea of what they do, but not that like institutional knowledge. So I'm, I'm still learning. But that can be good on the yes. editing reporting side because you're maybe asking the questions that readers are That's asking. Exactly readers right. are asking. It helps you ask the questions and like, you know, I remember some of my very like early interviews when I worked at Us Weekly and Rolling Stone at the same time because they were sister magazines. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my first interviews was like with Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20. And we started talking about compression on the radio and how it changes the sound of a song. And I didn't know that much about compression, but I know songs sound different on the radio. And we talked about it and he explained it and I learned so much, you know, and that's sort of like knowledge that I took with me to future interviews. Um, And I remember that the, the person transcribing my interview, I have a no transcribing policy, by the way. I don't transcribe my own interviews. You won't listen. I hate hearing my voice. I just join the club. So I will not be listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't transcribe my own interviews. And, and the intern who was transcribing it for me was like, oh, that conversation that you had about compression was fascinating. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, it's because I didn't know that much about it. Right. So yeah, it does help. Yeah, doing podcasts, I've learned too. Just the first few I've done here, but I, I did a public affairs show on radio um, before I came to Billboard. You can have all the notes in, in the world doing an interview. Sometimes that's a bad thing. Yeah. You want to be, you want to know your topic, but if everything is scripted, then what's the point of, of talking? Because the whole point is for the person asking the questions to actually learn something. Well, I think that's why podcasts are so popular. You know, like Mark Marin, or you know, like it, it is kind of unscripted. It's right. like wherever the conversation goes. I also I listen to Howard Stern a lot, and I'm surprised, shocked even at how much he 
pre-prepares his show. He's always talking about the writers and, you know, how, like, I can tell that he's looking at notes and going, okay, we're going to do this next. And that's amazing to me because it sounds so off the cuff. So, you know, I think the more off the cuff it sounds, the more your listeners respond. Yeah, that's a talent to make something scripted sound like it's live we're reading the script here perfectly aren't we surely yeah we are this has all been totally scripted it's like 50 pages long (laughs) it's uh, the charpie podcast uh shirley halperin billboard's news director hollywood reporter music editor is uh just uh, chatting about the ins and outs of billboard how we cover the industry how the industry uh, covers itself um hollywood reporter it's our sister uh, publication and website Sort of different, I would think, for you because you're the the one music person on staff, officially title-wise, for Hollywood Reporter. Billboard, you're here with a hundred or so other people. What's your mindset uh, for music coverage for a THR? Well, it's changed. Um, You know, when I started and I I was the sole music editor, I still am, Um, you know, I wanted to bring in music coverage that could straddle the film, TV worlds, things that that were interesting to THR. Um, I did some cover stories that I'm very proud of, you know, even even though I hate writing. Um, (laughs) There were a few that I was really, really proud of. One with Trent Reznor when Girl with the Dragon Tattoo came out. Um, One with Snoop Dogg when he sort of expanded his business to, again, like online video and and just other sort of sort of ancillary content um i did a story with pitbull where we called him the dawn of music because he was just you know exploding in every way possible and he was talking about doing really cool stuff like making a movie about bacardi rum you know um and uh and getting into his cuban roots and you know again like something i'm really not familiar with but it turned into such a great interview so uh I just try to find those interesting stories for THR. Um, some of it is like American Idol related. I've been covering American Idol since the beginning. Right. So it's been 15 years. Um, and we did like, I think, three Hollywood Reporter American Idol covers. So, you know, that's a big part of my job there. That's a great one because it intersects music and TV yes. perfectly as you'll ever get a topic. Yeah. And it's actually a really kind of interesting mirror to my career because when American Idol started and I was working at Us Weekly, I remember hating it at the beginning. I was like, this is this is bullshit. This is a shortcut to A and R that I don't believe in, you know? Shouldn't be like this. But then after a couple of seasons and as it grew and people became just more uh interested and, and it was just like a pop culture zeitgeisty kind of thing, I saw the merits of how they did launch people's careers like Kelly Clarkson and Carrie Underwood and even Chris Daughtry, Clay Aiken, you know, these, these are people that had hits on the radio. Um, so I came around to it. And then as I dug deeper and got to know all the players, you know, I realized that ultimately it was just a TV show and it was about making the best TV show. But, but bridging all of those worlds was, you know, fascinating and such an amazing learning experience and just an experience in general. Um, in fact, I, I did so much Idol coverage that they asked me to do the official American Idol book, ah. which came out for the 10th anniversary of the show. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So then I dug really deep and <laughs> I got – so I had to rewatch all nine seasons <laughs> and Fremantle Media, which owns the show, produces the show, gave gave them to me on DVD – and it was like 
it, it was like a marathon. Right. Because there was like 60 hours, you know, I mean, think about it. It was two shows a week, two hours each, you know, when it was at its height. And I had to rewatch all these shows. I set up a spreadsheet where I noted every important thing that happened with a time code and the disc that it's on so that I could reference it when I was putting the book back together. Right. Someone could like dig that up on my computer and think it was a crazy person. <laughs> it is like a beautiful mind insanity, the of, spreadsheet of, that I made. A spreadsheet of Simon Cowell insults yeah. over the oh, years. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was in there. And then just like getting the right image so that if we did like we the way I broke it up by chapter was sort of like the greatest hits of that season. So if I was writing about a Constantine Marulis performance, I wanted the right picture of him in the right outfit. Right. These guys photographed literally like every step that Taylor Hicks took. You know, there were so many photos, thousands, thousands of photos. My hand like hurt. <laughs> from looking at photos. Um, such a huge project, but very rewarding in the end. If you're doing something like that, you obviously have a sense of, of detail, uh, a total organization. sense organization, dedication. Yes. That must obviously serve you well in music coverage and every week being under deadline. For Billboard, uh, it seems like that's just a part of you that you'll you'll go to these great depths to make sure uh, you get what you need. Yeah, and I think the industry, the people who've been around for a minute, who've seen me at multiple magazines because I've worked at a whole bunch of places, right. they know that I have a passion for music, but not in like a fangirly way. You know, in fact, I never ask for selfies. I never ask for autographs. The only time I've ever asked for an autograph was from the person who became my husband. So, <laughs> who was an artist? Who was a musician? It's the only autograph I've ever asked for. <laughs> so, you know, I'm really not in it for those reasons. I love music and I'm passionate about covering it, and I'm very dedicated to um, to covering the industry side of it. Is it that your professional side doesn't want to blur with with the fan side, or why why don't you do that? It just doesn't feel just not something you're interested in personally. Yeah. No, I guess I've seen all kinds of reporters, and I've seen the ones that uh, – <laughs> I remember this one girl I worked with, who shall re remain nameless. When she talked to, like, a hip-hop artist, all of a sudden her speech became hip-hop, <laughs> became very street. Right. This is like a Jewish girl from Jersey. <laughs> and something – Not you. No, not me. Uh, and I was like, something about that just, like, didn't sit well with me. It's like, this isn't really you. Um so I think there's like a, an authenticity that I'm trying to sort of convey to people. And even when I was at Us Weekly, like having to ask very uncomfortable questions, I think I got them to connect with me, to trust me, and to see that I really knew and loved music and that allowed musicians to open up. Right. Um, and so I, I think it's really just about that. It's about authenticity. Yeah, that's got to be tough sometimes, too. Say you're talking to uh, an executive maybe at a record label and you have to bring up uh, maybe uh, numbers are down. Maybe there's a trend about uh, how much uh, money a, a company is losing or something. That can't be fun to no. ask these kind of questions. Oh, there have been some very, very uncomfortable questions like interviewing Jordan Feldstein, who manages Maroon 5, about the food fight he had with Sharon Osbourne at the Clive Davis party. Right. You know, that's one that you kind of have to tiptoe around. <laughs> 
are most artists you've interviewed uh, very friendly and nice? What's what's your take on interviewing uh, music uh, musicians over the years? I love talking to musicians because I love music. And when I've tried to interview actors, I've had a really hard time. Really? Yeah, because they act. So I can't tell if they're being genuine, you know? Right. I, I just, like, I, I can't read their face. I can't read anything that they're telling me. With musicians, it's like, they kind of wear their hearts on their sleeves. That's why they put it in their songs, um, the ones that write their own songs. <laughs> so, you know, I love interviewing rock bands especially. And I've gotten to be friends with, with a few musicians, like really good friends like Joe Troman from Fall Out Boy. You know, this is someone I, I spend a lot of time with and I hang out with. We have a lot in common. Um, I married a musician who's a producer as well. So, you know, he always has people around that are just like incredibly talented and I like that I can hold down a conversation in a studio setting, at the radio station, right. whatever the industry locale is, I can find a way to fit into that. You know, in a way, kind of like makes me think about like being a tomboy when I was younger and trying to hang out with the guys because I'm still kind of hanging out with the guys all the time. But I feel very comfortable there. And uh, for younger uh, reporters or anyone really in, in, in the industry, you've been uh, covering music for different uh, magazines now over the years. How do you feel about the future of music journalism? I fear for it. Really? <laughs> um, I don't meet too many people who say I want to be music journalists. It's pretty rare. In fact, when they do come to me and say I really want to be a music journalist, I make a point to meet that person because there are fewer and fewer of them. And when you're really into it, I know that they're like me, you know? Um, yeah, it's like, look, there's that old saying, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. It's a hard thing to do. Right. Describing sound is not easy. Yeah. It doesn't come naturally for most people. So, you know, there are fewer and fewer people to pick from, from the pool of, of writers out there. But in a way, there's some encouraging signs like MTV News is now like restaffing with real music journalists. And that gives me like hope that there will be other music journalists. Um, but at the same time, you have blogs and people who, you know, wouldn't consider themselves and I might not consider them actual music journalists because they don't follow the rules of journalism. And that's a scary thing. Right. You know, you have to get comment when somebody says something nasty or controversial or potentially defamatory. Let me uh, ask you, uh, Shirley, about the, the two uh, stories we, we we mentioned earlier in just a little bit more detail. Um, the the Eagles of Death Metal uh, concert and, and Bowie they both happened uh, similar time frame two of the most uh, in depth serious sides of stories that we've covered here recently in Billboard Let, let's start with Bowie uh, first uh, you said uh, Billboard knew he'd been sick but uh, a, a lot of people didn't mm -hmm. uh, came as a surprise what was the overall goal when Billboard presented this really nice package in the magazine after uh, Bowie died in January. There were so many places you could find uh, coverage uh, about uh, Bowie's career, uh, about everything related to the new album. What was really the, the guiding uh, thought of what would the Billboard package uh, be about in the magazine that week? 
Well, I think, first of all, it was just getting the package to be in the magazine that week, which meant turning over the magazine completely. Because right. he died on a Sunday, because I think it was Golden Globes night, and right. we are in production Monday, Tuesday, done on Wednesday. So... On Sunday, on a Sunday night, we've already done our cover story. Most of the features are through. And to rip up the magazine completely, have to do a million interviews, find people who worked with him or who knew him or, you know, could speak about who he was on a personal level was really difficult. And it was like all hands. Um, Everybody had to sort of chip in. I think where I came in and um, and it was helpful was, Having relationships with, like, um, Tony Visconti's rep, you know, or the head of Columbia Records who, you know, they put out his last album. And getting these people to talk to me and to, you know, if not be quoted, at least guide me towards somebody who could offer. Because everyone was in shock. We were still processing. In fact, I remember... You know, he died, and I think we were one of the first with the news because it was, like, one of our biggest web stories, like, of the year so far. Um, And like I said, like, I worked all through the night, and in addition to just getting the obit up, which we had written um, in 2011, and all the chart stories and everything that we could put together, you know, by the next day at the same time, I was like, oh, David Bowie died. Like, it finally sunk in. Right. I needed to process it too. David Bowie meant a lot to me. Certainly meant a lot to my husband, who's like, you know, modeled his entire musical career on his work. So, you know, in a way you have to separate yourself emotionally. And I think that's really tough. The the Bataclan story is, is a very similar thing. Right. You know, once I saw that it was Eagles of Death Metal playing, well, I've written a couple of other books. And in one of my books, Jesse Hughes was did an interview like spent a lot of time with me i had his phone number you know and just being that close to someone who was in the middle of this horrific terrorist act was a little too close to home for me right. you know um so again it's just like okay i i can't think about this person that i sort of know who i've texted with or whatever you know i have to just be the reporter right now and another thing was that that was a situation where you couldn't send a reporter down to the Bataclan to do on-the-ground work right. because it was too dangerous. So then you become, how important is the story without having someone on the field within striking distance? And how are we going to get the story done without having someone there? Because I don't want to endanger anyone's life. So that was just multifaceted, uh, you know, like journalistic exercise. And then, of course, just getting the information. Were the band members out? Um, you know, where were they? Were they coming back to the U.S.? And, and you know, of course, their their merch guy was killed, who was a very good friend of, like, Dan Cantor, who plays with Justin Bieber, who's a good friend of mine. Right. So it was all very close and, and hard. Really, really difficult story. But I guess one of the lessons is... A good old-fashioned journalism may be something you, you can't do on Twitter. It comes back to uh, contacts, working those contacts yes. uh, in the industry. That's how you uh, get into a lot of uh, a lot of exclusives and a lot of insights that yeah. uh, you just couldn't get if you didn't know someone who wants to share those with you. Yes, and that, I think, is probably my greatest asset here at Billboard is my network, network of contacts. A lot of these people I've known since they were assistants, just coming up in the industry, and now they run record companies. You know, so 
I, you know, in a way, it's like you sort of have this bond because you came up together, um, and that helps get the information to you. But it's also just about knowing how to work it, you know. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the vault that I will never let out because people trust me with that information. Um, and that also gives me access to the stuff that I can report on. Um, if they're going to give it to anyone, I hope that they come to me. That's going to be a, a, another one of those fine lines. People tell you things off the record. Maybe you're working on another or related story where it would come in handy to mention those facts. But uh, yeah. principles or just, just being a good person, I guess, in, in some cases. It, well, it's really jour- journalistic ethics. If someone tells you something off the record that is, you know, cannot be attributed to an unnamed source, you can't use it. You know, but it's good to have it in the back of your mind because it still informs other things that are happening. So it's not a complete waste. Um, But yeah, also being able to convince someone, okay, maybe this part I won't print. But what do you think if we reworked what you said about this so we can print it? You know, that's a negotiation that I think I've gotten pretty good at and that I encourage reporters to do. At the end of the day for you, what? What's the most rewarding uh, thing about covering the music business for Billboard, for THR? What are you most happy that you contribute to the whole music conversation? Huh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I love my job, you know. I love working here. Um, I love seeing music. I love listening to it still. I'm not so jaded where it's like, you know, like, oh, I don't don't go to shows anymore, you know, like – I still get a real kick and the thrill out of it. Some of my greatest memories, like, you know, I, uh, in 2007, I spent the summer with the Foo Fighters. I was with them for their, almost their entire album cycle. Oh. So I did the first playback at the studio, then the shooting of the music video, then the secret show in the Valley in Los Angeles. Then they went to Europe and I went on the road with them, slept on the bus, you know, like, those almost famous moments, right. which like you know aren't that common, but that's going to live with me forever. In fact, I just met a <laughs> just met a guy at an event on Saturday. He was like, "Do you remember me? We hung out at the Foo Fighters." Blah blah blah. blah. And I was like, "Oh, well, that was 2007, yeah. and this was the tour." You know, it's like I can frame it all, even if I don't remember that right. person. Um, you like Dave Grohl? You like the band? I love. They were nice. The band. Oh yeah, yes. It's Dave Grohl's like. He's the nicest guy in rock. He was an open book. You could ask him about anything. And I was nervous about talking about Nirvana and some of some of the more touchy stuff. Right. But he he was great, very accommodating. What were you uh, covering that for? For Entertainment Weekly. Oh, okay. They had never done like a really really big Foo Fighters feature, and I remember I managed to get six pages out of that magazine, which is unheard of, <laughs> you know, um, for a music a music story. So yeah. very proud of it. Any other acts you've met over the years that you count as favorites? Uh, like on a personal level, people you've met who who, who are the nicest or, or most insightful? Well, I did want to just tell one, one story, which is how I got into uh, writing about music in the first place. When I was in high school, I was a huge Fish fan. Um, pretty early on Fish fan, too, like 1989, 1990. Um, and I would follow them, you know, as, as Fish fans do. And one day, you know, after many shows, I ran into the drummer, John Fishman, in the audience and had the courage to talk to him. And we got into like an argument about Israeli politics in the middle of the Garden State Art Center, now the PNC Art Center, I don't know what they call it these days, but like literally standing in the field arguing. Right. <laughs> and uh, 
then I man, I, I, I don't remember how this happened, but basically we became we became friends. Okay. After our argument, I actually made my way down to the front row, and he saw me, and he had a road manager come out and give me and my little brother um, backstage passes. So that was my first backstage experience uh, at a fish concert. Right. Um, and we hung out, and we kind of became friends. We would talk on the phone, and um, you know we would get together whenever they were in the Northeast. And then I went to study abroad in Israel one year, and he really wanted to go to Israel. And I was like, you should come. I have a break. You know, it's between semesters. Come. I'll take you all over the country. And he did. He, like, got on a plane and came to Israel. And we did a 10-day tour of the country. We saw everything. And in these long drives that we had between cities, he explained the music business to me told me everything about it, about the record deal and how they get paid to tour. And, it was, you know, they were doing the horde tour at the time, how festivals work. I literally got a crash course in the music business from this drummer and fish. Um, and that's how I decided to start writing about music. When uh-huh. I got back to the States, I went to the, the college newspaper. I, I went to Rutgers and was like, I want to review the Paul Simon concert in Central Park. 1993. And um, they were like, sure. So that was my first writing experience. And it all stemmed from this personal relationship that I had with a band that I really, really loved and admired. And just uh, such a great guy who imparted all this wisdom for no reason other than, hey, you're a cool chick, you know. So um, I really value those experiences. You know, I still see him. I still go to fish shows. Um, so we're talking about a, a relationship that's now 27 years old, yeah. you know, N- not too many people can claim to know someone that long. So there's something very cool about that. And um, and I've sort of like modeled my whole music business writing career on that moment. Yeah, we were in a, a meeting uh, recently. You're usually in L.A. Sometimes you're here in New York and you sit in on, on uh, charts meetings where we meet with the edit staff. And it just sort of hit me. There was one. It was an idea you would or someone had brought up. It was about uh, new ways to leak albums, mm-hmm. because now it almost seems like uh, some acts might be doing that for the buzz. It's not really accidental. And I remembered your reaction. You you didn't say we should do this. We shouldn't do this. You you asked the room and you just sort of seemed like you were asking for your own uh, wondering, is this something we would cover? It just seems like uh, your whole thinking comes back to, let me ask the question. It, I think it's your inquisitiveness that uh, really informs what you do and, and hopefully what, what we do with our journalism here. I love that, Gary. Can you be my spokesperson? <laughs> yes, that was exactly right. I wanted to just get the temperature on it because it just seemed like there are these new ways of, of leaking things. Like it might be a Snapchat you know, thing that disappears after 24 hours, right. you know? So, yeah, I mean, maybe it is our place not to give someone a how-to, but just to analyze or look at how people are leaking albums and where it's coming from. You know, it's no longer a guy stole the CD from the distribution plant, right. you know, or an engineer took the tracks. You know, now it's like we don't know where these things are, where their access is coming from, and I'm kind of interested in that. I want to know the answers. And everything's always changing in this industry, so that's a pretty safe model to go by, that we'll always be asking questions because there's always new ways of doing everything in the business. Let's keep asking those questions and reading the room, as you said. That's right. We are Billboard. We ask questions. We are also your cold shower, meaning, like, 
It's not going to be a puff piece. There'll always be something that kind of digs, maybe rubs you the wrong way, but it has to be said. That's that's a good way to be known. Yeah, I'm into it. Shirley Halperin, Billboard's news director, THR, uh, music editor. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Shirley. Thanks, Gary. When I see the connection, though I see, I don't stare. Though I see, I don't stare. When I'm lost in my reflection. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.